Good morning and a very warm welcome to Essex Church, the home of Kensington Unitarians. My name is Caroline Blair and I'm a member of this congregation and taking the service today while our Minister Sarah is away. Thank you very much to Margaret for that beautiful start and for putting us into a medieval mood from the beginning. Of course, if we were really medieval, we'd be much colder and hungrier, so we can have a moment of thankfulness for that. I've got some opening words by the Reverend Peter Morales, um, American unit. Unitarian Universalist. Um, it's a bit of a, a keynote statement to remind us what we're all about. I like to call Unitarianism a religion that is beyond belief. We won't ask you to try to believe what you find unbelievable. We do challenge ourselves to be faithful to our highest aspirations and to our most deeply held convictions. We will ask you to love what you love and to be faithful to what you love. We commit ourselves to walk together, to heal what is broken, to support each other in life's journey, to make a difference in our lives and in the world. Now we have here our chalice, and all around the world today, Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists will be lighting their chalice, which is what links us together as a denomination. And to remind us that we are all one community, here's some chalice lighting words from Cape Town Unitarians. We kindle this light in the centre of our circle. May it symbolise the light and life and warmth in the centre of our beings. May it mirror the light of fellow Unitarians here and around the world. And we have here our Advent candle. Every time I say that, it comes out as Advent candle. So I've managed this time. When the song of angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the brothers, to make music in the heart. sentence that is most likely to send people running for the door to be seen no more it's the comment in the introduction to this poem which describes it as probably the most complex poem in the English language Um, the pearl is a 14th century poem it's famously difficult in every way even by the standards of literature 700 years old 
It's written in an extraordinarily difficult dialect, far harder to read than Chaucer. I'm not going to read it in the original. Um, it's written, I mean, Chaucer wrote in a London dialect, which kind of became modern English. The Pearl poet, whose name is not known, wrote in a Cheshire dialect, which didn't. Maybe you'd be able to read it, Juliet. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you were living there 700 years ago. <laughs> it was written in a fiendishly difficult way, technically. A very, very difficult rhyme scheme. <coughs> Excuse me. A lot of alliteration, keywords and so on. Some translators have tried to keep all of that, um, including Tolkien did a translation. They're terribly difficult to read. Um, this um, recent translation by Jane Draycott is just beautiful. She was willing to be flexible about all of that, only use it when she thought that it contributed to the way we listen to the poem. And it was a revelation, I think, when she brought out this. Pearl had hardly been read. It's written by the same person who wrote Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, which has always been popular. Pearl, only English students under great duress have ever, ever read it. Um, and suddenly it became something that people could read for pleasure. So if you ever think you might want to read a 14th century poem, uh, feel free to borrow this one and get your own copy. It's uh, only a little skinny book. Emotionally and intellectually, it's very difficult to grasp. The poet is writing about his little daughter, barely two years old, who has died. The poem describes her returning to him in a vision, suddenly grown up, elegant, intellectual, tough-minded. She engages in some muscular theological debates with him. She chastises him for his irreligious grief. She debates the nature of salvation with him and the meaning of Jesus' teachings. She demonstrates how the book of Revelation is coming to pass. This is not how we see two-year-olds. It's not really how we see anybody. Um, so I'm going to do a reading from the beginning of it. I've edited it down. As I say, it won't be in the Middle English. And I just think it is very beautiful. Um, I hope that even those who are not great poetry readers will also think this is a beautiful piece of verse. One thing I know for certain, that she was peerless, a pearl who would have added light to any prince's life, however bright with gold. None would touch the way she shone in any light, so smooth, so small. She was a jewel above all others. So pity me the day I lost her in this garden, where she fell beneath the grass into the earth. I stand bereft, struck to the heart with love and loss, my spotless pearl. So I came to this very same spot, in the green of an August garden in the heart of summer, at Lammas time when corn is cut with curving scythes. And I saw that the little hill where she fell was a shaded place, showered with spices, pink gillyflower, ginger, purple Gromwell, powdered with peonies, scattered like stars. But more than their loveliness to the eye, the sweetest fragrance seemed to float in the air there also. I knew beyond doubt, that's where she lay, my spotless pearl. Caught in the chill grasp of grief, I stood in that place. Clasping my hands, seized by the grip of my heart, of longing and loss. Though reason told me to be still, I mourned for my poor imprisoned pearl with all the fury and force of a quarrel. The comfort of Christ called out to me, 
but still I wrestled in willful sorrow. Then the power and perfume of those flowers filled up my head and felled me, slipped me in sudden sleep in the place where she lay beneath me, my girl. The poet then describes a most glorious landscape that comes to him in a dream of the forest and the river, and it is just very beautiful, but I can't um, read the whole thing. One more marvel awaited me. On the farther side of that fast-running stream, a cliff made entirely out of crystal gleamed like a sun with numberless rays of light. And at the foot of the cliff sat a child, a girl whose air of mildness and grace were matched by the dazzling white of the dress she wore. That child was no stranger. I knew her well. Sitting under the cliff, there she shone like perfectly polished silver or gold. For an age I gazed at her, and the longer I looked, the more I knew it was her. And we'll leave that there for now. Nobody has run away yet. A uh, little bit more from the pearl. Um, this is a bit of the more theological part of it. The poet and the pearl are in full conversation. I've had to miss quite a lot out. But I think you'll find this ends rather well for Unitarians. So the poet speaks. My happiness and my heartache, you were both, but the heartache was the greater. It pleases me now that you've been raised to such rich and honourable state. For me, this is my way to bliss, the root of all my happiness. Quite beautiful, of face and form, she speaks. May happiness befall you. You are welcome. Stay a while and walk here. You say I lead a life of happiness and want to know how high I'm raised. You know too well that when you lost your pearl, she was young and very small. Through his divinity, my lord the lamb took me to be his bride. He crowned me queen to grow and thrive beside him for eternity. Poet. Can this be true? Dear child of bliss, don't take offence if I'm mistaken. Are you the queen of heaven to whom the whole world offers reverence? Child. In the kingdom of living God, the court is not like any other. Each new arrival here is crowned as king or queen. The whole of heaven is theirs. No one takes another's share. On the contrary, we all rejoice and even wish for them a crown that's five times finer, if such a thing could be. But she from whom our saviour sprang holds sway over us all. The poet Indeed, if what you say is true, this grace seems over-generous. You lived less than two years in our land and never learned to pray, or please our Lord, or even say our Father, or the Creed. Let crown a queen on the first day. I can't believe that God could make so great an error. Better for you, young girl, I'd say, would be a countess, or a lady, or some other lesser rank in heaven. But to end as queen, that is too high. In God's kingdom, said the maiden, there is no question over less or more. 
we all receive the same reward. Whatever we think we may have earned, God's grace is great enough for all. A couple of months ago, a cemetery in Ohio hit the headlines when it removed the gravestone on the grave of a young woman on the grounds that it was in the form of the television character Spongebob Squarepants. The family were upset. Spongebob Squarepants had been a great favourite of the young woman who died. They wanted her memorial to be personal to her. The cemetery argued that they were a historic cemetery and, you know, had rules to preserve their classical beauty. If ever there was a case when you wished there was a compromise that could have kept everybody happy, it was a poignant little story. The cemetery behaved well, I thought. They offered to relocate the gravestone. They offered to provide another one at their own expense. But it seemed to me that we have moved a long way in attitude from a time when somebody would write a memorial to a toddler in which she came back dressed in silk and jewels and argue the nature of salvation and a time when we want a memorial to somebody to be in the form of whatever was personal to them however secular and Spongebob Squarepants subversive, rather amusing quite clearly uh, a long way from the book of Revelation It seems to have taken a long time, historically, for people to find an authentic way of writing about children. And, to a large extent, to find an authentic way of writing about ordinary, commonplace life at all. It was not really until the growth of the novel in the 18th and 19th century that people got to grips with what you might call the quirky nature of life, the ordinary domestic details, the personal details. I was a Sunday school child and also went to a church primary school. I used to get very frustrated by the Bible, and I'm sure children very often do. I can remember starting a term's work on the Acts of the Apostles, and my teacher saying, oh, you'll enjoy this book, it has a shipwreck in, as if they were discussing Treasure Island. Nobody has ever enjoyed reading the book of the Acts of the Apostles because of the shipwreck. They seem to be in denial about how unapproachable the Bible might seem to a modern child. Take the nature of Jesus. What did he look like? We have no idea. We have no physical details. What did he like doing? What, did he, what made him laugh? Did any of the apostles drive him mad? The people who wrote the Gospels would have been bewildered by this kind of question. Writing was a rare and precious phenomenon. They didn't waste it on things that were just to satisfy curiosity. The Gospels were written to inspire people, and every sentence is there to inspire, and not just to answer questions. Over a thousand years later, when Pearl was written, writing was still a big deal. Not many people could write. Materials for writing were hugely expensive. Writing about somebody was a huge gift to that person. And the little girl in the Pearl poem, the 
poet gives her every gift he can imagine. She's given beauty, grandeur, wisdom. Everything from beautiful flowers, wonderful jewels, gold, ruby, emeralds, and the finest theological arguments he could contrive. I don't think the poet would even have thought of saying, oh, and when she was with us, she loved playing with the cat. That's the sort of detail we like. But he was aiming for awe and wonder. He wasn't interested in that kind of thing. In that sense, we're infinitely better today at making someone seem real to the reader. We have learned the language of realism. We know how to describe what somebody actually looked like instead of just using an idealised description. We're familiar with the kind of little personal details that make people catch their breath and say, yes, that was that person. Along the way, we've come to feel this kind of grand, rather abstract description of a human being is a bit embarrassing and inappropriate. Have a look at a newspaper on Valentine's Day sometime. These newspapers that have a page where people can send in messages of love to the person they're closest to. And it's a sea of quotations from Winnie the Pooh and take that lyrics. We don't write love letters. We send greetings cards, hallmark cards, in which fathers do nothing but drink beer, go fishing and watch television and mothers collect handbags and make vaguely smutty jokes about their age. Those of us who use social media like Facebook know how we can almost drown under the number of cute little messages that are passed from person to person to person. Um, If you're not on Facebook, you might not be familiar with this phenomenon, but it is actually quite maddening. Every single day, without exception, you can open Facebook, and I picked one at random here. Somebody puts a little picture and say, if you love something, let it go. If it comes back to you, it's yours. If it doesn't come back, it never was yours. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to me to be somebody with their brain switched off to say that. I can think of any number of examples of things that you love and let go, and they don't come back, because that's just the way life is. We seem fatally in love with a snappy soundbite as a substitute for actual thought. Wordsworth wrote a poem, a very famous poem called Intimations of Immortality, which contains the very lovely sentence, Trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Now he uses that as a phrase of deep regret. His feeling was that those clouds of glory, we start life with them, and then we lose them. And he ends by saying, where is it now, the glory and the dream? It's a very 19th century romantic view that children come with this wonderful innocence and glory and that adults, it's all gone, and we're just husks, really. Now, I'm not going to go for that view at all. Babies are lovely, they laugh, they play. They laugh more than we do, they play more than we do, there may be some exceptions. is not the sum total of the glory of a human being. If you've ever been absolutely heartsick and weary and angry and full of ugly, unacceptable feelings, and somebody has helped you through that stage, that's not a baby that's done that. 
That's a friend, somebody who loves us, somebody that we love. A grown-up. And it's a grown-up who is trailing at clouds of glory, not just being a decent person. Sometimes people can astonish us by unexpected acts of kindness and generosity. They haven't lost their clouds of glory. When the Pearl Poet made that little tiny girl into a wise, combative, unsentimental woman, he was giving her clouds of glory, not taking them away. In the original Middle English version of Pearl, there's a hyphenated word, love dangerous. This has been translated as love's power to hurt. I'm pleased to know that there was a word in the English language meaning that. Pearl does describe with luminous intensity love's power to hurt. But it also describes the astonishing beauty of love. The reason I chose some words by John O'Donoghue before the time of silence is that more than any other recent writer I know, he had the skill of talking about people and their lives with that kind of mystical intensity. What would he have said about a SpongeBob SquarePants gravestone? We can't know, as he is no longer with us. But I know that he would have found words of compassion, wisdom and beauty if he had been asked. I want to make it clear I'm not in any way criticising somebody for wanting a television character as a gravestone. I find it rather charming that somebody should be remembered in terms of something she did love herself. There's no reason why our memories should always be formal and socially universal. If that young soldier was known to love this subversive and amusing character, every time the family look at him, they will think of her, which is a very touching thought. If the cemetery had not been a classical and historical one, I like to think that they would have left the grave as it was. But we do need both kinds of language in our lives. Love is quirky, homely, sweet, even silly. But we need to hold on to our ability to see the glory and the dream in those we love as well. John O'Donoghue said, What is a blessing? A blessing is a circle of light drawn round a person to protect, heal and strengthen. Later on, Perhaps when you have a few quiet minutes in the day, you might like to think about people you do love or have loved. And just for that moment, place them in a circle of light. Give them a little of the glory that the pearl poet gives his or her pearl. Thank you for listening. To listen to stars and birds, to babes and sages with open heart, to bear all cheerfully, do all bravely, await occasions and hurry never, to let the spiritual, unbidden and unconscious, grow up through the common life. This is to be our symphony. Thank you.